Welcome to North Star Big Book. My name is Carly Israel, and I am your host. My sobriety date is January 27, 1999, and I created this podcast simply to share the message of the big book. It completely changed my life. It always changes my life, and I hope it can help change yours. Okay, I have one of my soul brothers on here. Will you introduce yourself, please? Sure. My name is Jack, and my sobriety date is January 21st, 2009. Hello, Jack. Jack, are you an alcoholic, or are you just like a regular person on here? Uh, I kind of figured that it was an assumption that if I've been invited, but but I suppose this is an immediate breach of protocol. As soon as I jump on the podcast, yes, my name is Jack, and I'm an alcoholic. There's Thank little you, question Jack. as to whether I'm an alcoholic. And as I said, my sobriety date is January 21st, 2009. Yes, and so Jack and I um, have been going to meetings together for how how many years have you been in Cleveland? Uh, well, I've been in Cleveland since uh, since 2010. I mean, I was born and raised, then moved around, then came back. I've been going to meetings with you since about 2013 when I moved to the east side you know yeah oh right because you came over to the you came over the bridge right right anyone who's familiar with Cleveland will know that when I was west of the river I would never never see someone who was east of the river because people don't do that but (laughs) uh when I when I moved back to my original stopping grounds the east suburbs of Cleveland that's when we started going to meetings together around 2013. And I want listeners who listen to other podcast episodes to know that Jack is the voice that I talk about for many different references. Two of my favorite are that this program is battle tested, that it is. uh, I love when you talked about that before, because it is the the information that's in here is evidence for me. And one of the my favorite things that Frank Harnaker said, who died sober, was that he doesn't need to believe in anything because he has evidence. And all he has to do is look at the own evidence in his life. And I also love something that Jack has said that I shared before that you talk about the mental obsession being the most reasonable sounding voice in your mind that we're not supposed to, like if you went to treatment and they told you like what to look out for, we're not supposed to look out for like a neon sign that says don't drink. Like we're supposed to look for like, you're tired. You worked so long today. Like, why don't you just skip that zoom meeting? And that sounds pretty reasonable. It sounds very reasonable to me. The the you know the, you mentioned what folks might say in treatment centers. The thing that I always grimace a little bit at, although I think it's it's well-meaning, is the location of a new person at a meeting and saying, "Well, here, here's my phone number, and if you get squirrely, give me a call." Um, and certainly, folks uh, have offered their number to me under those circumstances. And you know what? I, I'm I've done it myself. Uh, but the more that I've uh, kind of reflected on it, the more I've realized when I was in active alcoholism and I, quote unquote, felt squirrely, whatever that means, the last thing I was going to do is call someone that I met in some church basement or some community hall. And, and I think, you know, part of that is, of course, the awkwardness of calling someone you don't really know and, you know, and everything associated with that. But the other part of it is, is that my, um, the way that my alcoholic brain worked, it was not um, that, you know, everything was going fine for the first 16 hours or so of the day. And then the 17th hour, my brain just on a binary switch 
says, uh, no, never mind. Uh, we're going to get drunk, really drunk right now. Um, instead, what would typically happen, and it could be because it was a good day or a bad day or it was just a day, uh, was, you know, well, why don't you just go, you know, have beer? Um, you know, it's, we're not going to get crazy. We're not super gonna chill, like super right. chill suggestion. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe we'll have one or two. Um, and you know, certainly after a few years of active alcoholism, I was, I, I at least had enough self-awareness to know, well, I don't know, it's been bad. You know, a lot of these times that I drank, but you know, the, the mental obsession, uh, for me, uh, has a number of different mantras that it kept coming back to, but the main one was always, it'll be different this time, you know, and that always sounded reasonable to me. For whatever reason, I always thought that, yes, maybe the last 20 times I drank, it didn't work out very well, but on this 21st time, it will be different. And if you had asked me then and there, why will it be different? I'm not sure I'd be able to articulate exactly why, but my mind was convinced that it would be. Yeah, that's the whole key is our mind. Like mine was not that it'll be different this time. Mine was, I haven't found the right medication. The doctors haven't figured out the right diagnosis. And I just need to drink until they find the right medication. So I'll feel better. And then I won't need to drink anymore because this is too hard to do without the right medication. And that seemed really reasonable. I mean, ask any of the doctors that I was seeing. They were like, we haven't found the right medication. So I needed to come up with a solution until they did. Right. You basically... You had no choice, right? I had no choice. Yeah, right. I had no choice. And so, I mean, you are both approaching our sobriety dates. You know, do you ever reflect like late December? I don't know when this is going to air, but me and you are in late December, middle December right now. We were approaching our ends. Like, do you ever think about it when your year comes up? I do. Um, I don't like to think about it a lot. I think mm -hmm. probably a lot of us, uh, you know, I, I, joke sometimes, you know, my sobriety date's January 21st of 2009. So you know that January 20th of 2009 was not a great day for me. Either uh, was the 21st. The 21st <laughs> was not a great day either. Well, I mean, it, it, at least I, at least the trajectory of my life was starting to turn around. I, I you know, to me, the, um, the, the last few months of, uh, before what I hope, and I'll knock on wood as we talk right now, I hope will be my last and, 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 and lasting sobriety date. Um, the, um, it's, a, it's one of the reasons I picked the section that I picked for, for this podcast. You know, it was uh, a period of living uh, in two alternate realities. Mm. Uh, you know, one where I, I was, uh, I actually was going to AA for a few months prior to my last vendor, uh, you know, had somebody that I called my sponsor, you know, told my girlfriend I had a sponsor, told my mom I had a sponsor, right? Told my IOP counselor that I had a sponsor. Um, you know, I had sort of uh, the trappings around me of, of someone who was trying to get sober, but there was this absolutely zero spiritual growth. Uh, the, the, just like I had been lying to my mom and my IOP counselor and my girlfriend, I was lying to the guy who I called my sponsor. Mm -hmm. I had just basically taken the duplicitousness that I brought in every other aspect of my life. And I just brought it into AA and I was just, you know, a guy sitting in a room, uh, for, you know, an hour or so, um, you know, three or four nights a week, but, um, I was miserable. You know what? I want to pause you for a second and ask you this question because I've never thought of it until you just described it. But I felt that same way too. Mine was um, five days in AA of that same thing. 
And I'm wondering now, we were all lying to ourselves, but I think for me, it was really because I had not truly believed that I was done. Like I was doing it because everyone was on my back and I was doing it because I knew it was the right thing to do. And I was doing it because I was in trouble. But it, until I tried taking my own life and ended up unsuccessfully doing that and ending up back in the program where I needed to be, that it, it wasn't until I conceded to my innermost self that I needed to be there that I had to start changing what I was doing. No one else could have convinced me. Yeah, and, and no one could have convinced me at that point either. I mean, I think the while it's not the part I chose for today, you know, one of my favorite parts is that alcohol beats us into a state of reasonableness. Mm -hmm. You know, at the, at the time, the time period that we're talking about, just for what it's worth, I, um, you know, I, I certainly drank a lot as an alcoholic. Uh, I also like to, you know, include other things that help me and drink more and accelerate my drinking. And so uh, a couple of things were going on at that point in my life. I was seriously dating someone. Uh, she held on to my bank card and my driver's license. Uh, <laughs> my, my mother and my uh, brother simultaneously monitored my cell phone bill to make sure that no calls to certain numbers were being made. Um, and at various points, you know, my keys were taken away from me. So, I mean, it, and, and, and I was with all of that, you know, as a 25-year-old guy, uh, I was still not willing to get honest with people in AA. And so to me, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that there's anything that any of those people who were closest to me in my life, there's nothing they could have said. They already said it. The, uh, the fact was for me that I heard what people said in AA. I understood what people said in AA in the abstract. I just didn't think I needed to do all of it. And if you ask me today, why didn't you think you needed to do all of it? I mean, I, I guess I'm sort of just piggybacking off what you said. I guess I just, I didn't think it had gotten that bad. Like I, thought I think we were too blocked off. I don't think like when you were just describing that just now and you were saying that you couldn't be honest with people in AA, I think the real truth was we couldn't be honest with ourselves. And I was not capable of being honest with myself even after my suicide attempt, it wasn't until I was finally taken through the steps when I remember presenting my fourth step for the first time and, and my sponsor being like, I'm not reading your fourth step. Like you are going to read this to me. And then when we went through it, I thought she was going to be like, oh my God, like, I, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like we misunderstood who you were. And I didn't realize that you went through all that and you didn't actually have to do this part. And what she said was, holy crap, look at what you did look at all your decisions, look at all your behavior. Do you see the pattern? And when I did, that was kind of like, like the sucker punch of like God of like, look, this is you, you're the one who's the problem. It's nobody else. So I, I can't, um, you know, I, as a, as I know, you know, I have a number of similarities in addition to having a January sobriety date, you know, I, my, uh, also, you know, wound up in a psych ward after trying to check out early. And, uh, and, and that happened in the, the days leading up to my sobriety date. Um, and, you know, boy, you would think that someone who was in a hospital like that would say, okay, well, this is enough. It wasn't for me. Uh, it, it, and then after I left there, um, a bunch of people banded together to send me off to in-person treatment. I went to rehab. 
you would think that would do it. Maybe on the flight down to Florida, which is where I went, you know, that would be what it took. It wasn't until, and I, and I think, you know, in hindsight, I can be uh, at least relatively honest about trying to pinpoint where it happened. It wasn't until about two weeks down in Tampa, Florida. I was in uh, rehab. You know, they took one of those places where they took away your cell phone. And so you get one call a day and you got to do it from a pay phone. And I called my mom and I called her because I was very upset. I was, I'd been there for two weeks. I expected because they kind of lured me down there with the idea that maybe it'd be about 30 days. And I was down there two weeks and I had learned that people had been here for like a month and a half, two months, maybe 90 days. And they hadn't given me a discharge date yet. And so I called, uh, I called my mom to say, you know, these people have kind of duped me down here. And they're not letting me know when I'm going to get out. And I fully expected my attorney mother to hear this from her youngest son and go into that sort of maternal, oh, I'm going to fix this for you. Let me get them on the phone. We're going to, you know, we'll get you a day. And you know what? She said, good, good. I, I, you don't need a discharge date. And it was when my own mother, when it was clear to me from a conversation from my own mother that she was much more uh, comfortable with me down in Tampa, Florida, with a bunch of people she had no idea who they were but she was much more comfortable with me there than she was in my apartment in columbus um that i don't know why that's what what said uh, but i i remember i i broke down that night and it was at that point i realized there is no reason anymore for me to kind of pretend that uh that i'm something i'm not that that um you know, to not be honest about what my problem is, you know, I just need to kind of lean into this because I ultimately, if, if my own mother doesn't really want to be around me mm. then I don't really have anything to lose. Yeah. What do I have else to have to lose? I'm so grateful to have you on here. What pages are we doing? Uh, 72 to 74. And why did you choose these pages, Jack? That's an easy one. That's my favorite part of the book. If anyone <laughs> ever asked me on something like this, I would have chosen this. I, it's my favorite part of the book to sort of anticipate what, what the next question would be, because I think a lot of us have, uh, a lot of us recovered alcoholics, if we're lucky, we have a moment when we read this book where we put the book down and yeah, I know this is audio, not visual, but we sort of start looking over our shoulders, you know, someone has been following me around and writing a book about me. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, uh, th this was that point. Uh, you know, I remember uh, quite vividly being in my girlfriend's apartment in Columbus uh, at some point prior to my sobriety day, um, reading this on her futon uh, mm. and getting to this part of the book and thinking, all right, well, you know, at various points up until chapter six, uh, I have felt like this book is describing me, you know, doctor's opinion, more about alcoholism. You know, certainly there have been points there when it's talking about uh, the, the cycle of the alcoholic or the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Okay, yes, I relate to that. But when it starts talking about the alcoholic leading a double life, mm. uh, I get, I had chills. I had chills and I, I still sometimes get chills when I read it now because it reminds me of just how lonely of an existence I had for so long in active alcoholism. That's how I feel when I read Bill's story. Every single time, Bill's story makes me intensely uncomfortable. Yeah. Before yeah. we start reading, I want you to know that in this corner of the top of 72, I have names of people who used to be in my cell phone in AA who killed themselves sober. 
Um, and I have that there because I truly believe this is the demarcation in the steps where if you don't do this work, you're not going to survive. Because knowing that I'm an alcoholic, knowing I'm going to die if I don't do this work, making a decision to do it, it's all great. Writing the inventory, awesome. But if you don't actually do it, you will die. And I've got people on here who had more sobriety than me than hung themselves, that killed themselves, that overdosed, and they all were sober. So the that's that's intense. So the you know I I sometimes look at the twelve steps as sort of an inside out job. I mean we start at really at sort of our our uttermost interior uh, in in sort of this very humbling and deflating admission that we have a problem that we can't solve. And then gradually through the steps, we start to expand out of ourselves a little bit. You know, the ninth step, for example, is a step in which we're going outside even our AA circle, approaching, you know, normal earth people and, and making amends for things that we did wrong. The, the fifth step, which is what the beginning of this chapter is talking about is, okay, so I've made some admissions and some decisions, uh, and I've even taken some time to myself to reflect on my own experience. But now I'm going to take those admissions and decisions and reflections and I'm going to bring them, bring them to God and to one other person. Mm. Am I willing to, to bring it outside myself? Just that smallest step. And, you know, the, the you talked about how some of these the, some of the previous steps might not be uh, might not generate the same amount of resistance uh, as the steps we get to here. I think it's interesting. Uh, one of the reasons I like this is that. I can almost kind of sense Bill when he gets to this part of the book, he's going to talk about, you know, why we're doing this step and, and spiritually what the foundation of it is. But before he gets to all that, he's going to get to the point. Okay. You have to do this. If you don't do this, you're going to get drunk. And if you believe you're an alcoholic and you stay drunk, you're going to die. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, there's a few points in the book where AA almost anticipates that we're going to balk that we're going to say, I don't know if I want to go that far, right? And the ninth step on page 76 is one where it says, remember, if we, we agree at the beginning. Yeah. You would get, right? So it knows that I'm going to hesitate to step off that ledge. Yes. Well, the fifth step, it says, you know, uh, the, we will be more reconciled to discussing ourselves with another person when we see good reasons why we should do so. The best reason first. If we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. Right. So it basically says uh, the reason you're doing this is because if you don't do it, you're not going to solve the problem. Simple as that. I love it. Will yeah. you start at the beginning and read it to us? Yeah. The beginning of chapter six. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, having made our personal inventory, what shall we do about it? We have been trying to get a new attitude, a new relationship with our creator and to discover the obstacles in our path. We have admitted certain defects. We have ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. We have put our finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. Now these are about to be cast out. This requires action on our part. Which Can you just pause it for a second? Yeah. I love that that part, this requires action, because I, the person I did not do my inventory with, but I asked to do my inventory the first time, I wrote it down and I handed it to her. And she's like, Wait, what are you doing? And I was like, I did it. And she's like, first of all, she looked at it. It was like a story. 
I didn't, even though that she told me how to do it, I was like, yeah, that wasn't really a helpful way for me to communicate with you. Like the columns, because I couldn't fit enough information in them. So I just decided to like, forget the columns and write my story. And she's like, that's not what I asked you to do. So you, and you had a better way. I had a better way, right? Because why? <laughs> who could fit all their story in those little teeny columns? And I wanted her to read it because I didn't want to read it to her. That would be embarrassing. So I love that it tells me it's going to require action on our part because get, get ready to work, right? Yeah, and, and I mean, you touched it with the needle right there. I didn't want to do it because it would be embarrassing. That's the point. That's the point. The, uh, you know, and I know it's so, uh, it's so counterintuitive for those of us who are in the culture we're in now to embrace something that is ego deflating, to, oh. you know, acknowledge weakness and, and to say, oh, you know, I'm going to really run towards an experience that's going to bring humility to me, right? I mean, that's just, even as I say it out loud right now, even in the context of this conversation, it's like, I'm not going to do that. I you still, know? I still preface 10 step inventories to Sarah by saying like when they're really bad, I'm like, this one's embarrassing. And then I'll send the 10 step. Like, because the thing I'm upset about is so ridiculous and petty, but if I don't do the inventory, I'll stay blocked. But that's what the most embarrassing things were on my fifth step. They weren't like, the ridiculous things that we did because we all did them. It was like, I'm still upset about what happened when I was in this grade and I'm no longer in that grade. I'm very, very far past that grade and I keep, it won't go away. Like those embarrassing, stupid, embarrassing things. Yeah. I mean, when I did my fourth step, um, you know, I certainly, I had immediate family members and, you know, that boss that was always, but I mean, there was a guy I got into a fight with in sophomore year of high school. Mm -hmm. Now this was like half a life ago when yeah. I'm writing this thing. And I thought I hadn't thought about it really. And I thought it wasn't a problem. But when someone handed me a notebook and said, write down every, you know, everything that falls within the parameters of a resentment, I got to tell you, that guy was like sixth on the list. He came out early. And um, there's stuff that, and that's embarrassing to acknowledge. Certainly there was stuff uh, and we'll we'll get to that part of the book in a moment, stuff that I, I didn't want to write down or acknowledge at all. But um, it, again, it's sort of counterintuitive as it is. That's the good stuff. You know, that's the stuff that causes us to right size ourselves. You know, one of my favorite expressions is uh, egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Uh, and if I'm not spiritually fit, it affects all my relationships. I'm the best and the worst person in all these mm -hmm. relationships. And I just and, want you to acknowledge, because I've been at meetings, unfortunately, where I've heard people be like, no, you need to also write a list and inventory of all the things you do well. And I'm like, mm, where is that in our book? Like, that's a great spiritual practice post doing all the work. But this is about what they're about to say in the next sentence that you're going to read, our defects, the things that are blocking us, the obstacles in our path. Me doing something well is not an obstacle in my path. That's just so, you. Like, I'm uncomfortable. I want to talk about my good stuff. Yeah. So I, I, I'm jumping a little bit ahead from where I read, but we're going to talk in a moment about a solitary self-appraisal. Insufficient. I, I, to, to, to hear, uh, I would say, uh, to do a solitary self-appraisal, uh, that should raise your antenna a little bit. That's probably not going to work. And if your solitary appraisal includes chalking up great things that you did, then you're probably heading in the wrong direction. The only textual basis I can find for that idea of making lists of good things is not based off anything in the big book. 
there is a discussion in the 12 and 12 where it talks about daily inventories and chalking up credits where they're due. But I mean, that has nothing to do with the fourth and no. fifth step. And, you know, to me, that's one of those things that, um, you know, look, if, if you want to do that, fine, but I'm not sure that's going to advance your spiritual growth at all. You know what right. I mean? Um, that's a really great question. Is this going to advance your spiritual growth? Yeah. Um, or keep, keep advancing. All right. So this requires action on our part, when, which when completed will mean that we have admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our defects. This brings us to the fifth step in the program of recovery mentioned in the preceding chapter. So, I mean, I, I think it's probably um, assumed uh, from this, but what we're talking about here is we just did our fourth step. So assuming that we followed all the instructions and they are detailed instructions from page 64 to, to 71, uh, you know, now we're ready to do what's next. And the preceding chapter is how it works, which is the steps. And the program right. of recovery is the steps, which is what they say on 59. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. So if anyone wants to know if they're working the program, the real question is, are you working the steps? That's the only program we offer. Right, right. So the next paragraph says, this is perhaps difficult, especially discussing our defects with another person. We think we have done well enough in admitting these things to ourselves. There is doubt about that. And here's the part I was referencing a second ago. In actual practice, we usually find a solitary self-appraisal insufficient. Many of us thought it necessary to go much further. We will be more reconciled to discussing ourselves with another person when we see good reasons why we should do so. Okay, the pause. I'm going to tell everyone, Jack is an attorney by trade. Tell us why they give us that intro to why, why don't they just say it? Why do they give us that? Why do they give us? I'm, that sentence part? before, why do they say we're going to be more reconciled to discussing ourselves with another person when we see good reasons? Why don't they just come out and say it? Why are they prepping us? I, I, I think they're prepping us because they know their audience. It's just my opinion. Yeah. Their audience is is going to be someone, I mean, look, uh, I don't know about you, but I had things, I, I believed that expressions like skeletons in the closet or take things to your grave, I believed those expressions existed for a reason. They existed because we all had that stuff. And that's, and that was just a totally I grew up, rule number one, don't trust anyone. And my, well, my, can I just tell you? That's bleak. <laughs> I'm sorry. I grew up in an alcoholic home. And my go-to place when I get afraid or my security is threatened today is, see, this is why we don't trust anyone. Yeah. That's my go-to place. So when I was approached with this task, I was like, wait, what? Right. No, no, right. no. So, I mean, no. See, to me, yes, I had skeletons in my closet. Yes, I had uh, things that I would you know, quote, take to my grave. But I thought that I thought we all had those things. And some of that was just alcoholic justification in my head that, yes, you know, it, it's normal that you did those things. We all have done things like that. In reality, it was it's something like, that only don't might. worry about it. Like, don't even, don't even discuss it. Yeah. You know, we all have regrets. Right. Um, and, and so and, and I um, I grew up Catholic. Um, you know, we, we did the Catholic sacraments. I met with priests. I did reconciliation or confession, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I hated it. <laughs> you know I mean? I just, I hated it. It's uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, it was something that I did because I felt I had to growing up.
but the idea of approaching someone else and talking about it, you know, that was just not something that I felt um, was necessary. And then in a few instances, I think my preser my self-preservation, my self-preservation instinct kicked in and said, well, if I tell someone about that, I might go to jail. I don't want to do that. Um, so, you know, the, the, I think the reason that it prefaces this part by saying, you know, we'll be more reconciled to it if we understand why is because we need to kind of prepare the landing ground for what is a pretty, you know, a pretty impactful statement, which is you have to do this. Otherwise you're not going to get sober. And I have written next to that life and death, life and death step. If you don't do this step, I mean, that's why I have those people in my corner on that, on that page. Cause I know for a fact, one of them refused, she did her fourth step, but she would not share her fifth step. I knew her sponsor. I knew another woman sponsor who hung herself and left three children orphans. And I went to her, if you know, and watched them down the procession at St. Anne's because she didn't want to do the work either. These were women and men that were in AA but we're not doing the program. Well, so I, I will, I think there's plenty of people that uh, for better or worse can relate to this. You know, the, the version of the steps, my attempt at the steps that has led to the last, you know, 11, almost 12 years of sobriety, that was not my first swing at the steps. I did a fourth step once before. Um, and, you know, I think the, this next, section of the paragraph talks a little bit about uh, what happens if we don't go all the way with this. Um, so it says the best reason first, if we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. Time after time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts about their lives. Trying to avoid this humbling experience, there's that word humbling, they have turned to easier methods. Almost invariably, they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of the program, they wondered why they fell. We think the reason is that they never completed their house cleaning. They took oh, you pause for a second. Two things. Yeah. Above, invariably, they got drunk. I wrote, or dead. And then where it says, we think. I have to remember. I always like to remember. Whenever it says we, that's the first 100 men and women who were writing this book together. And they're coming from their battle-tested experience. And they're saying, based on what we know, in our experience, it's because they never completed their house cleaning. It's not one person saying it, it's all of them saying it. So I, I would love to tell you that the expression battle tested that, you know, when I used it, it was because I'm some spiritual giant. I know it's yeah. not yours. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I do think that I just decided to use that synonym kind of off the cuff one day. I love it's it. Stri it's strictly born out of laziness. It's because there's we that came before us. You know, you, I, look, I... I think that um, the life of active alcoholism is very lonely. You know, you feel like uh, when you truly understand that other people around you aren't quite drinking the way you are, it's, it's, a, it's a lonely problem to have. Yeah. And to feel like I have to figure out the solution to this problem just makes it worse. Yeah. We don't have to. We've got a, a, a paint by numbers, battle tested, you know, whatever you want to call it. This is not, uh, this is really simple stuff. It's not always easy, right? But it's really simple stuff. And, you know, the term invariably, um, you know, it means without, without any equivocation, you know, without any variation, uh, they got drunk, you wrote dead, 
Um, I suppose if you want to be kind of stark about it, those two things are the same thing. Yeah, you, know it could I mean? be life without living, death without dying. That was the thing I related to so much in the rooms, that that idea that I was just walking around dead and I couldn't die and I couldn't live. And it was just that hell. So the next sentence says they took inventory. All right. But they hung on to some of the worst items in stock. That first attempt I, t I took at a fifth step, you know, I, I twiddled my thumbs and I messed around for like a month and I didn't write my fourth step because it, it actually required real work. And then you know, the guy who was my sponsor said, hey, how's that coming? I scrambled together, you know, probably 20, 25 pages on a notebook. And I said, oh, it's done. Mm -hmm. And he came over and uh, I still uh, recall vividly sitting at the circular table in the main room of my single apartment in Columbus. He sat across from me after a few hours and he said, is there anything that needs to be in this notebook that's not in this notebook? I remember it like it happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. And a sinking feeling came into my stomach and immediately three things popped into my mind that I knew probably shouldn't just be on that list, but probably should be like on the first page of the list. And I didn't write them down. Mm -hmm. And I didn't write them down because I, I kind of knew from bouncing around AA rooms that, you know, if you write it down, you're probably going to end up having to talk to somebody about it. And then you're probably going to have to make amends for it. So maybe if I just don't write it down, it just doesn't exist and I won't have to deal with it. So and did you not write it down on purpose, you think? I absolutely did not write it down on purpose. And yeah. then when he asked you, what'd you say? Nothing? I, when he said, is everything that needs to be written down on this list, on this list, I looked him yeah. dead in the eye and I said, yes, everything's on there. Knowing full well that that wasn't true. So when you take guys through the fifth step, do you ask that question right away or at the end? I, I probably, I think I probably ask it a few times. Me too. Um, I ask in the beginning and then I ask at the end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. And then I ask uh, it after they do their fifth step hour. I'm like, was there anything else? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I probably ask it mul multiple times, but in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, when I take a guy through, uh, I, I normally will uh, explain to him at some early in the process that, um, that you know, A, uh, this is going to be between me and him. This is not to be shared with anybody else. He needs to feel free to be as candid as, as, he, as he should. And, you know, the Big book says that nothing counts in the fourth step but thoroughness and honesty. So he's got to be thorough. He's got to be honest. And uh, and then usually, you know, during the process, if there's a, a, a column or a row that he's included that I particularly relate to where I feel like it would be helpful, I might tell him a little bit of something that's on my fourth step list. So that and tell him, look, you know, we can be honest amongst each other as recovering alcoholics um, about these things that we did. Uh, the idea being that when we get to the end and I ask him, is there anything that isn't on this list that should be on there? Um, you know, I do think that as a sponsor, it's part of my obligation is to actively build trust mm -hmm. in someone who's been living an active alcoholic life for a long time. I mean, certainly and, and rightfully so, we spend enough time talking about the damage we do to others, but it's hard to be an active alcoholic. And, you know, you know, you just said one of your, your guiding principles, but don't trust anybody. How do you get that person to write down a bunch of stuff in a notebook and then tell someone else about it? I had a plan after. So my, my sponsor at the time drove to Ohio University to Athens where I was. And I wrote my four step because she told me I had to and I was scared of her. And she drove four hours, right, to get there. And my plan, I knew I had to do it. Like she was not going to like not let me do it. My plan was I was either going to do it and keep going or I was going to kill myself after. 
Yeah. Like I, I was too scared of her to not do it. But if it, if I didn't see and experience what I did when I did it, I would have probably killed myself. But I needed to keep going. Like I, it was a deciding factor. Like was one, of, it was going to be one or the other. Probably, I. This is something that people say, you know, with some frequency. But probably only in AA would someone be able to nod their head and say, "Yeah, I understand that you either do your fourth step or you off yourself. Those are your only two options." Right. Um, you know, to me, I think I think it's it's understandable now to look back and say, well, why, why would you go to all these meetings and go to IOP and tell your family you're doing all this stuff and your sponsor gives you the instructions and why would you omit the three things that immediately, well, because I didn't really think I had to do all of this. I just didn't think that, that I thought, well, if I do it 90% of the way, I'll get 90% of the results. Yeah. And you know, if I'm sober 90% of the time, I'll be okay. Yeah, that's way better than what I'm doing right now. You know, look, it wasn't that I wasn't able to read in the book that, yeah. you know, that won't work. That self, yeah, that nil, the results just, are nil. I just didn't believe it, you know? Like, why would it be, a, yeah, why would it apply to you? Yeah. So they only thought they had lost their egoism and fear. They only thought they had humbled themselves, but they had not learned enough of humility, fearlessness, and honesty in the sense we find it necessary until they told someone else all their life story. So this is now, these two paragraphs, this is my favorite part. More than most people, the alcoholic leads a double life. He is very much the actor. To the outer world, he presents his stage character. This is the one he likes his fellows to see. He wants to enjoy a certain reputation, but knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it. So uh, when I ultimately came to AA, I was in law school. Um, I had gone to a, a very expensive private Catholic high school and graduated with honors uh, in, in East Cleveland Burbs. Um, you know, I had I had typically run with relatively popular crowds for, you know, for the stakes that that were present in high school and college. Um, you know, I was a three sport athlete in high school. I went to a, a, a pretty well respected college on the East Coast. And graduated with honors from there. I got into law school, a ranked law school. Um, and, you know, I had what I can best describe as sort of the back of the baseball card statistics of a guy who was on his way. Um, you know, a guy who was, you know, my parents, if they wanted to, could brag about me at parties. You know, oh, he, he graduated from college and now he's going to law school and he's thinking about being a prosecutor or maybe he'll go into private practice, right? And you could say that and and the other parents would say, oh, that's great. You know, uh, meanwhile, while they're saying that about me on, let's say, a random Tuesday night, I'm on day four of a bender at 2 a.m. in some shady part of uh, Columbus waiting for some guy who I don't really know to meet me to get the thing that I need to keep going to day five and six of my I life. pictured it like a film, like, so your parents are at the party and then it like the cuts to like you doing a line off of like a bar. Like, <laughs> like that's what I pictured. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's, it's, you know, I can laugh about it now, but I mean, it's, it's so pathetic really, you know? Um, it really was, our lives were so pathetic. We thought we were cool, but we were not, we were lame. Well, and, and I did think I was cool until about that part of law school, because in law school, it's a competitive environment. Everyone's ranked. And so most people did not want to party. Most people didn't drink. So not only was I living like this, I was mostly living like this alone. I was doing this in my apartment by myself. Having my to hide it. 
That's yeah. where you. That's why you relate to this line so much. I remember when you just read that that last sentence about he knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it. That horrible feeling when someone would compliment you in front of you and you knew that you were such a liar pants and that they had no idea and it felt so yucky. So, so, so like a friend's uh, mom or dad from high school, or let's say, would say, oh, yeah, I heard you're going to law school. How cool is that? And I, I would think to myself, I really hope that I passed that last round of finals that I took, that each one of which I took under the influence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was not the image of the law student. Uh, it, it was very different to what I was actually living like. But I wanted to accept that. I wanted to accept those the, those perceptions of me, uh, but I didn't actually want to get sober. You know, um, the next paragraph is the inconsistency is made worse by the things he does on his sprees. Coming to his senses, he is revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. These memories are a nightmare. He trembles to think someone might have observed him. As fast as he can, he pushes these memories far inside himself. He hopes they will never see the light of day. He is under constant fear and tension. Mm. That makes for more drinking. So that was when I had shivers uh, go kind of up my spine um, because, you know, the. Just the, so anxious. Right. Knowing that I am not who I say I am. And um, that, that fear of being exposed as a fraud, I think to a certain extent, I think maybe all human beings have that to a certain yeah. extent. But when you really are a fraud, it's a it's a truly para, uh, paralyzing fear. And the 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 reason that this is not wholly associated with negative feelings for me is uh, another thing I remember very vividly. My sponsor was on vacation, and so I was working with my grand sponsor at the time, a guy named Joe, and Joe. Uh, very uh, into the book. Some might call him a, a big book thumper and uh, very into looking for textual uh, support for everything he did. And if that meant going to the dictionary, he went to the dictionary. I love that. So he, um, I was working through my ninth step at the time and I made ninth step amends to my stepmother, my dad's wife. And, you know, at that point I had made plenty of amends already. You know, folks had said, uh, one guy asked me to come to Cincinnati and go to church with them. You know, someone asked me to, uh, to pay money back. Someone asked me to uh, stop saying bad things about them. Very simple. I certainly had my fair share of, we'll just keep doing what you're doing. I had plenty of those uh, that, you know, we had to revisit in some instances. But my stepmother hit me with one that to this day still, um, still kind of, uh, kind of knocks me back. She said, what I'd really like you to do to make amends is just be genuine. Mm. And that was it. And, uh, and so I did what I think most newly sober, you know, recovering alcoholics would do. I called the guy. I said, hey, she said I'm supposed to be genuine. Well, that's easy enough. You know, I'll just be genuine. And he said, well, do you know what genuine means? And I said, not really. <laughs> it was like a long pause. And so he went to the dictionary. And he said, you know, the definition of genuine is that something is truly what something is said to be. Mm. It's authentic and sincere. And at that point, I realized a couple things. I realized, one, my stepmom's been on to me this whole time. And two, what, what AA has given me is the opportunity to be genuine. 
Um, you know, I don't, and if you had told the guy down at the gas station, Hey, I can be genuine from now on, he would, he would look at me like I have three heads. But for those of us who live in active alcoholism, the idea that I don't have to live a double life, that I can just be who I am. I don't have to reconcile lies that I've told. I don't have to, I don't have to put on one face for this person, that face for another person. Uh, I mean, it is, it's the greatest weight that's been lifted off. It's, it's so quite- interesting that you're saying that because I was just, I was running yesterday and I was just thinking about one of the things I would always want to be considered as today as a sober recovered human is I want to be known as like trustworthy and consistent. Like I want to be known, like, remember how exhausting it was to not be that. And I remember when you were talking, there were different people I told different sobriety dates to before I got sober. Like, so my mom, I told her one date and then I told my, like, I, I had all, and I couldn't remember it all. You know, like that saying that you don't have to remember anything if you tell the truth. It's just the truth. And it was exhausting. It was so exhausting to try to be something that I wasn't. And I love that your stepmom called you out on that. I'm like, what an ego punch to be like, oh, I wonder where she can see that I'm not being genuine. I guess everywhere. Yeah. Well, I will say my stepmom is extremely insightful and one of the smartest women I know, and she's a social worker. So I would say probably early on, she was on to me that, you know, this is a guy where we don't really know what's real about him other than that he's full of it. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, I just think my, my stepmom knew that I was, you know, that I had this problem and that, you know, what, and I think the idea of being genuine you know, that was the amends that she asked for, for, for her, but really it's for me. It was for you. Yeah. Yeah. She, she must love you enough to ask that because she knew that that was going to make you be the man that I know you as today. Right. Well, the, you know, you talk about um, how, how hard it is. You know, one of the things that um, the highest compliment I can get now is someone can hear about an experience like the one I had and say, I just can't picture you being an active alcoholic. That, when someone tells me I can't picture you like that, I'm the, there's no higher compliment for me. And yeah. the, 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 I think a big part of that is um, I, I've been given the gift from God that I can just be myself. You know? oh, so I love what you just said. It's, it's hard to, uh, and you know, the thing is, is I'm not trying to, to shame anybody here. You know, the word shame is kind of a, a loaded term. But the reason that we're not ashamed of our experience anymore is that we're not, we're not living like that anymore. Yeah. But, you know, when I'm living like that, when I'm an active alcoholic, that's a shameful way of life. I mean, there's a reason I'm ashamed. It's because I'm behaving shamefully. You know what that's I mean? What the humility, that's where the humility comes from because you have to admit that you're not who you say you are. Like that. Yeah. And then you have another one of us sitting across from you who's also done the work and is doing the work. And, and we get to say to them, me too. I've been there. Like yeah. you don't have to live like this anymore. Yeah. I love what you said. I wrote it down. I've been given the gift from God that I can be myself. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a gift because it does not come naturally to me. You know, I think some people, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm seeing you on the screen, shake your head vigorously back and forth. You know, it's not, this was not something that came naturally. I had to practice. I remember in the beginning, I had to practice being honest. I had to, and I had to have a plan with my sponsor. When I was dishonest, I would stop in the middle of the conversation and I would say, 
I don't know why I just said that. That's actually not true. And I would like make a joke out of it. And the person was always an AA because like I didn't talk to anyone else at that point. And they never called me out and were like, I can't believe you were just dishonest. They like saw me like learning how to like swim. Right. And so I would I would stop myself and be like, oh, I'm so silly. I don't know why I said that. And then I would tell the truth. I was a terrified law clerk at a downtown Cleveland law firm, uh, you know, handling assignments. And uh, I would say things to assigning attorneys and in instances where I didn't even have to lie. And I know plenty of alcoholics can relate to that. And I would say it, and as the words are escaping my mouth, I'm thinking, why am I saying this? Yeah. And I would fix it then and there on the spot. And I would get these quizzical looks like, who is this law clerk who like <laughs> is demanding this rigorous honesty in, you know, how he's describing this assignment that he did. And, you know, they didn't know, they didn't know what journey I was on, but it was, um, but I got to tell you, um, you know, we, we can laugh about that, but let's let's take the opposite scenario let's say that i fib in what i deem at the time to be an inconsequential meeting okay well if, if i start becoming this goes back to solitary self-appraisals if i start becoming the arbiter of when it's important to tell the truth and when it's not i can tell you the end of that story it's not yeah. good no um, and so you know it, the, that idea of being genuine and transparent it's uh, that's it's it's one of the reasons this is my my favorite spot because we talked a little bit about you know when I realized I had nothing to lose and when I decided to just get honest that that night in Tampa when I just decided you know what I'm just going to tell everybody everything and I'm sure some of the guys I went to treatment with would say yeah he, he told us a little too much um but uh you know, I how are we figured, supposed to know? We don't know. We've never done this before. So we don't know what the barriers are. So we're just like, here it is. I just yard sailed it all out there. Yeah, I love okay. that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'll just finish up kind of I, I right at the top of page 74, just the sentence that carries Wait, over. Read that last sentence from we must be. Yeah, 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 that's that's the, that's the part. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so there's a paragraph that we're just kind of glossing over talking about how physicians have a low opinion of alcoholics we're liars. and their chance of recovery because they're liars, which we've already <laughs> talked about uh, to, 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 a, a, to a, a fair degree. So then the last sentence that carries over to 74 says, we must be entirely honest with somebody if we expect to live long or happily in this world. Mm. And when I was an active alcoholic with those things that I would take to my grave, whatever expression you want to use, that sentence was so foreign to me that I would be happy and honest at the same time. If I was honest, then the things that I wanted, I might not get. That the things, if I was honest, the things that I had, I might lose. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, it, it, to me, it was an ends justify the means type of, of a relationship with honesty. Uh, I would be honest if it was expedient for me, and mm -hmm. if not, I, I would not, uh, because I need to get what I need to get. And I thought, I think, I didn't think about it much, but if you had probably, if you had pinned me down at the time and asked me, I would have said, well, everybody lies. Uh, maybe everybody else does. I don't know. But I will just tell you that, um, you know, I know in my personal experience, I can't. I can't do that and be happy at the same time. And while it took a bit of a leap of faith uh, at the time, um, when I did get fully honest, um, you know, I've been happy ever since. I don't know what else to say.
you know, they're so cool. And then we'll, we'll close up is there's not one thing that I have within myself today. That is a secret. I mean, it's not like I tell everybody, but there's pe- there's my people and there's right, not right. one thing I'm holding to my chest. So no one can see it. There's not one thing that only Carly knows. Right. Yeah. Is there one thing that only Jack knows? No. Isn't that I nice? Mean, the, the, um, I mean, not not purposefully, you know. What I right, mean? of course. Um, the uh, the the way that um, if there is, then that's usually a good signal to me that I need to go get that out to somebody yeah. else. Yeah. Um, and the the reason that um, that I know that is because I lived for so long with without sharing anything to anybody else that I just, I know where it ends. Um, and the, the fact that there's, that I am who, you know, that God's given me the ability to be who I purport to be, um, is, that is something that, um, that that's a freedom that I'm not really willing to give up. You know what I mean? You're not allowed to, cause I selfishly need you to be sober, not only for myself, but I have three boys and I don't know which one of them might have our gene and you're the first call I will be making. Well, hopefully, hopefully none of them, just cause it'll be simpler. But. That would be lovely. I hope none of them. I, I would never say out loud, which one I think it might be because my dad used to do that and it drove me insane. But but, did, he predict, did he predict you? Um, yeah, I would go to meetings with them and he would introduce me as a future alcoholic. <laughs> and I was like, double barrels. Well, so that's the expression double barrels. That's what that means. Okay. Well, uh, I, um, I mean, you can't blame him. He's right. I mean, yeah, it just was a little bit of a, it was a help for my fourth step. I had a little bit of a resentment. About that. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. You are amazing. Thank you for asking me. It's really my, been my pleasure. Thank you. You are my soul brother for life. You better stay here and do the work. I will. I okay. promise. Bye. Yeah. If you'd like to join us on Thursday nights for North Star Big Book meeting, we would love to have you. 7 p.m. Eastern. It's a Zoom meeting and the information is in the episode notes. Have a great one. For any listeners who would like to get deeper insight into my story, I just released my memoir, Seconds and Inches. It was a dream of mine for decades to write my memoir. And while I do not believe in Mixing money in AA, I just wanted to share with the world that I did this accomplishment and it can be found wherever you normally purchase books, paperback, audio, or digital. I wish you an awesome day. Thank you.